invite you to open your Bibles with me this afternoon again to the book of Romans. Scripture reading is Romans 5. Our text, once again, will be the fourth in a series of five sermons on Romans 8, 28 to 30, all things working together for good. This time we will look at it through the lens of justification. By the time Paul has written what he's written in Romans 8, he has explained the doctrine of justification in Romans 4 and 5 especially. The entire passage is a little too long for us to read, but we'll pick it up at Romans 5 verse 1. And it begins, therefore, and the therefore is the doctrine of justification. Paul has just been spending time explaining. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man one will, die, will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And now, not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgments which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which comes from many offenses resulted in justification. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one demands disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law answered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As far as scripture reading, our text, as mentioned, taken from Romans 8, a few pages further. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. As I say, we will look at this particularly through the lens of justification, but we will look at the whole passage. Now we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word to us. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you may recall when we began from previous sermons that Romans 8 is sort of an interruption in the book of Romans. From Romans, after the introduction in Romans 1, from Romans 1, 18, all the way through chapter 8, verse 16, Paul has been the catechism teacher, as it were, teaching us the doctrines of sovereign grace, outlining from a doctrinal perspective how it is that those who were enemies of God can be made right with God. The central question the book of Romans answers for us is how can we be right with God? As we came to, he has dealt with the doctrines of sovereign grace and even sanctification and dealing with sin inside of us. And when he comes to Romans 8 at verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul changes tax at Romans 8.18 through the end of the chapter. And basically he is answering the question about sin not within us, but sin around us. Consequences of sin, as you know from the book of Genesis, is not only did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, but the curse came on the whole world. Thorns and thistles began to grow. Sicknesses and diseases came. Death came into the world. All the bad stuff that happens to you and I in ordinary day-to-day life began to happen after the fall. It's a consequence of sin. And Paul has been busy explaining to us how that through Jesus Christ we can be restored into this relationship with God and even be made holy. And yet he, he stops and says, but I realize there's something else that may be on your mind. Because you live in a life of trouble. If, if God has made all things right, why is it that sickness still comes? Why is it that accidents still happen? Why is it that bad things come into our lives? How do we explain all of this? And Paul, the pastor in Romans 8, from verses 18 to the end of the pastor, gives us essentially two answers to that question. 
First of all, he says, part of it is understanding the time in which we live. We are living in this time of groaning between now and the second coming of Christ. You may recall from a previous sermon, there were three kinds of groaning. Paul highlighted the fact that it's not just Christians who are suffering in the world. Creation itself, he says, is groaning. Creation wants to glorify God. That's the purpose it was made for. But it has thorns and thistles. It has destruction. It has the effects of sin in it. And it groans. It longs for the day when it will glorify Christ perfectly and the curse of sin will be no more. And God's people groan. And he says, the Holy Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit groans, and he intercedes for us. And you may recall, where was that intercede? Where does, when it says the Holy Spirit intercedes, what does, what does it mean? Well, it says the Holy Spirit working among us sees the pains and the difficulties. And what does he do with them? He brings them to the throne of God. When the Holy Spirit comes to the throne of God, who does he meet there? You may remember Pastor Dibbett's sermon last week. Christ is the mediator and the high priest at the right hand of God. You remember from Hebrews 4 how Pastor Dibbett outlined the fact that, the, that Christ understands because he's been a human. He understands all the pains and all the difficulties that God people face. And who else is at the throne of God? Well, God the Father. But earlier in Romans 8, it's been highlighted how that God is our Father and that we can come to Him and cry, Abba, Father, that He is a caring and a loving Father. And so the first answer that Paul gives us in Romans 8 about how do we deal with all of these challenges, it is we do so with a forward-looking, realizing this is going to be life between now and glorification. It's part of the life in which we live. But we don't carry it alone. The Holy Spirit interceding for us, the Son empathizing with us, and the Father who is our loving Father is at the right hand of God, and He is God. He is in control. We don't have to carry it alone. But secondly, not only is there a forward-looking point to glorification, there's also a comfort Verses 13 to 17 of Romans 8, it's the fact that we're not slaves to sin, but we have the spirit of adoption. We are heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ. Now, it's tempting. We'll deal with this in a moment. It's very tempting to misread that and think that somehow our suffering adds something to our salvation. That's why it's so important we understand the doctrine of justification. Paul says, no, that's not true. And yet you suffer with Christ, and there's something good that comes out of that. All things work together for good to those who love God. And in our text, we've described the five point parts of the chain in verse 30. God's divine foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification is five links of a golden chain. 
I want you to think of that chain like an engagement ring. It's an engagement chain that God gives to his people. And it's as if, in Romans 8, 28 to 30, Paul is saying, when you are dealing with challenges and you don't know what to do because of of loss and tragedy and accidents and all the horrific things that happen in your life, I want you to take this chain. And just like a bride looks at the engagement ring and is reminded of the commitment of her fiancé, I want you, Church of Lord Jesus Christ, to look at this chain and to be reminded of God who gave it to you, and you will find comfort. Well, let's, let's seek to understand that comfort as we consider all things for good, justification, suffering, and hope. In our first point, I'll be a little more doctrinal in which it's important that we actually understand what the term justification is and we'll seek to remind ourselves of our catechism classes on that justification is a legal relationship. Secondly, we will see that justification reframes how we understand suffering. And thirdly, we see how justification and suffering together combine to bring hope. And at the end of the, it all, we have a very different perspective. When the world sees bad things happening... The world thinks it's a sign of of difficulty, of bad luck, of fate, weakness. Or, if you want to be a thorough Darwinist about it, maybe you're just not the fittest who have been called to survive. But what we have here is a totally different perspective on life and on suffering. It's suffering that happens within the confines of God's sovereign plan. And it happens to people who are not the victims of fate or natural selection. No, it happens to people who are created with significance, who bear the image of God and his children. No, it even happens to the bride of Christ, whom God loves, whom God has chosen, and whom God is looking forward to spending eternity with. Well, let's start then with justification as a legal relationship. I don't know. We all obviously had different catechism teachers. I recall from my catechism teaching, there were teachers that I had as a student, and certainly over the years that I've taught catechism, I've always used the illustration of a courtroom for justification. You've heard that probably in sermons before, too. We come into the courtroom guilty having nothing to offer before the judgment seat of God, God's perfect law, God's perfect demands are there. We are guilty. But then Jesus Christ is there as our advocate, and he not only argues for us, but he presents his own righteousness. Pastor Scott's been describing that as we've been working through the early parts of the catechism over the last few weeks. The result of that is in the court of heaven a declaration is made. And the declaration is that the person who was an enemy is now a friend of God. Legally, there is different relationship with God as a result of justification. Now, justification is connected to a lot of other words we use in theology, but it's not precisely the same thing, and it's important that we draw this distinction or else we may end up in confusion not only in doctrinal matters, but even on the issue of comfort in the midst of trouble. 
justification is not predestination. Predestination is the eternal plan of God. We talked about it in terms of a list. We can think, children, of a list of names that God has. Here are the people that over all of history are going to be saved. Together, these people will make up the church, the bride of Christ. It's for these people that Christ came and died. And history is unfolding as these people are being brought into the church. But are all the predestined justified? No, we are always predestined. Those who are predestined have been predestined from eternity. But justification happens in time. There is a time in the life of each of us, if we are children of God, in which we must be justified. It is a one-time legal declaration in the court of heaven that we are no longer enemies, but we are now part of the bride of Christ. Our legal status in heaven has changed. Sometimes we confuse justification with the finished work of Christ. We think that when Christ died on the cross and he paid the price for sin, well, then we became justified. No, Christ's work is the basis of justification. It is because Christ paid the bill that he stands in the court of heaven and says, I can pay the bill on behalf of the sinner who can't. There is a distinction between having the righteousness in the bank account, so to speak, when Christ obeyed the law, we can think of, think of a bank account of good works, a fulfillment of the law. Christ filled the bank account perfectly. Now we come to the court of heaven, and I'm guilty, and I have no money to pay the debts. Well, now Christ is there, and he says, I will take my bank account, and he, I will give it to you. And then the guilt of the debt is paid. There's a difference between the bank account existing and the bank account being put to my account. Justification is after the bank account has been given to me and it's accounted to me that God declares the bill is now paid. You are righteous before God. Neither is justification the same as conversion. You remember from catechism class, conversion is usually talked about having two parts. Remember what they are? Repentance and faith. Conversion happens in our life immediately. Last time we talked about calling. The gospel comes and it calls. And when we respond to the call of the gospel... It's always, we can't put an exact finger on it in terms of its time, but we are converted. I always find it helpful to think of conversion in terms of the two parts of how closely they are related. If we think of this pillar over here as being the law of God and righteousness and holiness, and that pillar over there being enmity against God, Satan, hell, everything that's wrong. By nature, when I'm born... I'm heading this way. I'm looking this way and I'm moving this way. But when by the power of God the gospel comes and we are converted, two things happen. One, I'm stopped in my tracks. I no longer go in this direction. 
I now go in that direction towards the law of God. I'm going to be made holy. But I also am turned around. I now by faith look on God and now I see Christ and now I see all that he has done. And so I am looking in faith as well as conversion. I have repented and God is working his sanctification in me and I am moving towards slowly becoming more and more holy even as God is holy. That's conversion. But conversion happens to me here. Justification is that legal declaration in the court of heaven. It doesn't depend on me. It is God saying, I now see that person as righteous before me. It is a one-time legal declaration. Why, Why do I make such a big deal about this? I'm just geeking out on theology and trying to dot I's and cross T's. No, beloved, this doctrine was at the heart of the Reformation, and there was so much that flows from it, also in terms of our assurance of day-to-day life. But I want to argue here in terms of Romans 8, we're not going to have the comforts of this unless we have this, because, and I say this especially in our own circles, where some struggle with assurance of faith. If we don't have this proper understanding of justification, we are tempted to think that on the days I'm a good Christian, on the days I come to church and feel close to God and sing and read the Bible and don't do any terrible sins, well, those are the days I'm pretty confident I'm a Christian. But then when bad things happen, then when difficulties come and I sin, well, then all of a sudden I can't, I wonder and I think, well, there's no way God can, can love me. There's no way I'm a good Christian. And when bad things happen, well, now God is punishing me because of this or because of that. Do any of you know that line of logic has been put in your mind? Well, Paul is saying here that's, that's a mistaken line of logic. The root of our comfort is justification, and once we are justified, we are justified forever. When God has declared us righteous, he has declared us righteous. We stand in the sight of heaven as if we had never sinned. We stand before God as if the obedience that Christ did, we did ourselves. And even to such people, bad things happen. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Just because we're justified doesn't mean we're going to have an easy walk through life. Bad things will happen. So how do we deal with that? What is the comfort in all of this? We see that in our second point. Because justification reframes how we understand suffering. I'd like you to take your Bibles back with me. Let's reread the first few verses of Romans 5. I don't know if you caught it as we read it. But there are a few things said there which I suspect may come as a surprise to some of us. Let's read it carefully. Paul, Romans 5, as I mentioned, in between Romans 4 and 5, Paul's explaining the doctrine of justification. And he begins, Therefore, 
speaking to the doctrine of justification he's just talked about, therefore having been justified by faith, and he lists three consequences of justification by faith. So we've been justified by faith, we've been made right before God, God sees us now as righteous. There are three things that are consequential of this, Paul says here. One, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So previously, God was an enemy. Previously, we didn't have peace. We were at war with God, and God was war, at war with us. We had sinned. The wages of sin is death. We were a fugitive from divine justice. But now we've been brought before the courtroom of heaven. We've been declared righteous before God. What's the consequence, Paul says? One, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer on the most wanted list. We are justified. God, when he looks at us, sees Christ in us. And he sees us in Christ. Is Christ guilty before God? If the answer is no, then believer, you're not guilty before God either. Because God's a just God. And if he accepted Christ's sacrifice for you, you know the debt is paid. We have peace with God. Second, through which we also have access by faith into this grace. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that while you came to the courtroom as, a, as an accused, you now are part of the family of God and you have access. Not only did God make you not guilty, he brought you into his family and now you have access to the throne of grace. Remember that throne we talked about? Where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the loving Father, the interceding Spirit, the empathetic Son. Well, you have access there. You can come to that same throne with the triune God. There is fellowship. There is communion. We have access by faith into this grace, the grace in which we stand. We have standing there. We can come in as if it's our house. We live there. We belong there. We're part of the family of God. Oh yes, it's grace. But it's given to us. It's real, even today. Thirdly, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to that wedding. We have brought, been brought in to the family house, but what's, what's the point? Well, the point is what it was from all eternity, going back to that divine foreknowledge we began with, in which God decided that for his glory, he was going to gather a church to be the bride of Christ to live in the new heaven and the new earth. You're being brought into the wedding preparations. Looking forward to that day when Christ will come again. And there is present joy. Yes, those of us, especially brides who are married, you looked 
forward to your wedding day. And there was great joy in the preparations, wasn't there? There's no joy like the wedding day itself. And yet there is joy in preparation. You are being brought in and you are being invited to prepare for the wedding and rejoice in the preparations. That's what Paul's saying here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that. Oh, but wait, Paul says. There's something more I have to tell you. There are not three. There are four consequences of justification. Not only that. But we also glory in tribulations. What, you say? Paul, this doesn't fit with the first three. I get the first three. They sound wonderful, don't they? Wedding preparations, being brought into the throne room of God. But now, now you say we glory in tribulation? That's a consequence of justification. Commenting on this passage, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's to the shame of the church that texts like this are a surprise to the church. Because it indicates that we don't give biblical weight to the reality of suffering in this life. The Bible gives us lots of as to how we should deal with suffering. Let me give you just five texts here which say similar things. Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution brings blessings. Acts 5.41 The disciples departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The bride being delighted to take on the name of her husband even before the wedding. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The sufferings of believers helping us to see beyond the frivolous elements of a wedding is a fairy tale and seeing the depth of the commitment and the love that is there on the part of the groom for us. Working us in weighty glory. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 14. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trials which are about to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Rejoice! To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. 
The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. Oh, it doesn't justify those who do evil things to, to Christ or to you. They'll bear, bear the punishment for it. But realize that in suffering together with Christ, you are being changed and being prepared for the wedding. Oh, sometimes we are tempted to misuse some of this. Sometimes Christians hearing all of this think, okay, I guess I need to deal with trials in my life with a stiff upper lip, a stoic. I just need to deal with it. I don't, shouldn't let it affect me. No, that's not the point at all. The point is it should affect you. It should make you feel closer to Christ. It should have an impact on you. This isn't stoicism. This isn't all Christians can deal with all the troubles in the world and not be bothered by it at all because we're somehow better and above it and God will just lift us up. And No, that's not what it's saying at all. Others have almost a masochism about it and say, oh, I guess somehow I'm, if I can only face suffering, then somehow I'm going to have a better justification. Oh, no. Now you're being a Roman Catholic. Now you're putting your suffering as part of the good works. It's as if Christ's righteousness wasn't adequate and he needs, a, he needs a dose of your suffering with it. Not at all. That's why it's so important that we start with a proper understanding of the doctrine of justification. We are righteous before God. God is looking at us as the bride of Christ. Perfected in his righteousness, they see him. Oh yes, there's a work of sanctification still to be ongoing. There are still wedding preparations to be made. We're not ready yet for the wedding. But these things are happening in the process of making us ready for that wedding. Oh, you see, the scripture sets, not just in Romans 5 and Romans 8, but throughout, they set the fact that one of the consequences of justification and the biblical plan of things is suffering. It's a truth that I fear speaking at least for myself and thinking through the weight of which has not always struck home with me. Beloved believers, we are called to suffering. But you say, that sounds, that sounds pretty negative. But the point of Romans 8 isn't despair, isn't discouragement at all. It's hope. And we see that in our final point. Justification and suffering combine to bring hope. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Let's read that again. Not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul doesn't leave this in the abstract. 
He speaks of very specific blessings. The New King James says it produces perseverance and character and hope. King James says it works. Now from an earthly perspective, we think the opposite. Our natural minds are inclined to think the opposite. Let's stick with the wedding example for a moment. Bride and groom are about to get married. They've just become engaged. They're in the midst of wedding preparations. And in the course of the wedding preparations, everything seems to go wrong. He loses his job. She gets sick. The house they were going to buy falls through. They try to rent something and something else happens. You name it. Use your imagination. Everything goes wrong. What's our human response to that? We're wondering whether they should get married. Right? It's casting doubts upon the wedding. But Paul's point is exactly the opposite. Paul's point is justification produces tribulation, and tribulation is part of what prepares you for the wedding. Unlike the fact of causing doubt on the wedding, it adds to the certainty of it all. Look carefully at what he says. It produces perseverance. Character. Hope. God uses the challenges and the difficulties in our lives to prepare us, to sanctify us, to make us the bride of Christ. And that hope is real. Why? He says the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us. You're going to love the Lord Jesus, your bridegroom, more through all the trials that you're going through than you ever did during the good times. Let's go back to Romans 8. Our text says all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his promise. Why? Well, here's here's the engagement chain. Let's look at the links. Those he foreknew, the first link. There was a plan before the foundations of the world. The world's not an accident. It has a purpose. The glory of God. And nothing that happens in history is an accident. And God is God. And ultimately it will all work out. And in that plan is where you and I exist. We're not atoms as part of some materialistic, natural selection, evolutionary process. No, we are created image bearers of God, created for communion with God, created for the purpose of the glory of God. If you want comfort in the midst of the difficulty, start there. Understand why the world exists and why you exist. Secondly, those he foreknew, he did predestinate. From out of all of that creation, already before time began, God chose a church to become the bride of Christ. 
And the council of peace, that covenant made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son promised to pay the price so that all of God's attributes would remain, that justice would be satisfied, that ultimately the triune God would be glorified. And the Father promised to give the Son the bride, and the Holy Spirit promised to apply the work of Christ and to gather the church by working in the hearts of those who had been called to believe so that no one, not one on that list would be lost. Predestination, what a comfort. This isn't anything you and I have to do, but the three persons of the Trinity covenant promised together that they were going to accomplish this. Those he predestined, he also called. The Holy Spirit is busy working through the word to make alive dead sinners, to equip them to repent and believe. And when, when they are brought into new life, when they've been justified, what does he do? He moves right in. He moves into our hearts. The Holy Spirit lives in us and seeks to more and more conform us to his image, to teach us what it is to be the bride of Christ. And yes, he remains the third person of the Trinity. And he intercedes for us. And he brings the Father's love and he brings the Son's empathy and he brings it to our hearts and to our minds to comfort us. And those he called, he also justified. He reminds us that in the courtroom of heaven, the work has been done. Oh yes, when we started this process, you were an enemy of God, but believer, the work has been done. You have been declared righteous before God. You are no longer on heaven's wanted list as guilty. You are justified in Christ. We read it in Romans 5. Just as an Adam all died, so in Christ they shall be made alive. You are in Christ, believer. The work is being done. The preparation for the wedding feast is ongoing. And that describes the situation the church finds herself in today. And that's the context. Paul says, gives us comfort that when we face the challenges of life, when we face the difficulties, we can say, all things work together for good to those who love God. Yes, trials and tribulations have their purpose. You're being prepared for glory. You're learning to know your Savior better. You're learning to love your fiancéed bridegroom more and more. And you are every day witness to his goodness, to his care, and to his help. And you gives you occasion to speak well of your beloved to others. Oh, we're not there yet. There's one more link in this chain that we'll consider next time, that link of glorification. We're not at the wedding yet. Preparations, though, beloved, don't last forever. At some point, the wedding's going to happen. But while they are happening, this is important. Church of Jesus Christ, you're in the midst of wedding preparation. Are you glorying in your tribulations? When difficulty comes your way, how often do you think of yourself as a victim? Instead, Paul instructs us to understand this is part of the process of sanctification. 
It's a consequence of justification. And it's a preparation for glorification. But we don't do it alone. We have access. We're not enemies. We're entitled to the throne room of heaven where a triune God is invested in the wedding happening. Don't think, believer, that somehow your bravery in dealing with the difficulties that come your way is somehow warranting you extra extra reward in heaven. No, we're justified for the sake of Christ. We're not saved by our bravery through the trials. We're saved because of his love shown to us in the midst of our trials. When Paul thinks of that, he says, what shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Shall he not bring us all things, neither height nor depth? Nothing. We can go through that list. The first sermon I read, Romans 8, at the end, that doxology, and I inserted some of the challenges that you and I face. Cancer and COVID. The death of a spouse. Economic loss. Depression. Loneliness. Oh, read Romans 8 and put in whatever tribulations that you have. Child of God, know this. They are not preventing you from justification. They are not part of justification. They are a consequence of justification because God in His almighty plan, and we don't always understand His plan. I'm sure Job didn't. Sometimes He deals with us in ways that it will be eternity before we understand, but it is part of the plan. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities or powers, things present or things to come, height, depth, any other created thing, any tribulation, none can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we have been working through these passages in Romans in which you teach us about comfort in the face of tribulations. Lord, we have to confess that your scriptures turn our natural worlds upside down. We think it's our own good works. We think it's our own entitlements. Oh Lord, we have a million and one reasons why it is that difficulty should not come to us. And yet, Lord, your word instructs us that the story isn't about us. The story is about you and your plan. The story is about the Lord Jesus Christ, that name that we heard about this morning that's above every name before whom every person will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, of him desiring a bride and gathering out of the whole human race sinners to become part of the church, the bride of Christ. And even now, through time, he is preparing that bride for that great and glorious day. O Lord, as we 
Listen to these things, we pray, that we may not only listen with our minds, but that you will work with your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Teach us to submit to your word, but teach us to love you more and more, to grow in love and to grow in grace. Lord, prepare us for that great and glorious day. We thank you for the privilege of worship also in this day. Will you bless the word to our hearts? Forgive that which is sinful. Be with us as we go from here. Keep us from an unprepared death and bring us again next Lord's Day. Lord, grant that our worship may be a foretaste, a preview, a holy anticipation of that day when our faith will be sight and every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and indeed the curse will be over because there will be perfection in that new heaven and that new earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.